Attention all members of Dartmouth's class of 1996. Our postponed 25th reunion is happening July 22nd through 24th, 2022, and registration is now open. It's only fitting that our episode today features our 25th reunion chairperson, Nakaya Cherry Chinchilla. Be sure to visit Dartmouth1996.org to find out everything she has planned for us and sign up today. That's always been a, a sort of a trope that has followed me where when I decide I want to stop doing something, do something else, and I explain the reasons why, the people around me are like, are you never going to be satisfied? Are you going to be perpetually unsatisfied? But it's, it's like a feeling you have inside of you when you know you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And so I, I tend to follow that feeling. A bundle of untamed energy, Nakaya Cherry Chinchilla has always followed the path that calls her soul, whether to be a party girl, a television exec, a teacher, or a writer. But she also is attuned to when her heart and soul tell her she hasn't quite found the thing she's meant to do. Find out how staying true to your heart can be a guiding force, even when life throws trial after trial your way, on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. Today, I am here with Nakaya Cherry Chinchilla, and we are going to talk about the full embrace of life and the drive to keep going and kind of the indomitable spirit of this amazing woman. So thank you so much, Nakaya, for being part of this. Thank you for having me, Leslie. So we are going to start with the same questions I ask of all my guests, and they are these. When we were in college, who were you? And when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you would become? Wow. Okay. So when we were in college, I remember once um, I was referred to as Queen Hippie. I was a student who came into school thinking I was going to major in philosophy and French and go to law school, but ended up falling in love with history, majored in history and women's studies. I was someone who liked um, a good time, to be sure. I was an Andrew Mellon fellow for a while until I started flaking on turning in my assignments. Then I stopped being an Andrew Mellon fellow (laughs) (laughs) because I liked when I went on my off time in New York, I spent more time socializing than I was working on my research. So So you were in New York having fun. I was in New York having fun during my, I think my junior summer. I was supposed to be working on my Schomburg Research Fellowship which was focused on how the Communist Party embraced Black people during the Harlem Renaissance. But instead, I was kind of partying because during that time of my life, I was going through different things and my social interactions with and the friends I made, which uh, later on would be very significant to me later in life. That was my main goal, was to maintain these relationships with the people around me. But but I got the sense that that wasn't an automatic thing. I went through a small period of time, which is the only period of time in my life where I guess you would say I was was not technically, but slightly manic depressive. I went through a period of depression because for me, um, I'd come from an all-Black community and all my schools have been predominantly Black until I went to a boarding school my junior year of high school. And uh, I had never been anywhere where I was the minority and where and there was no like I can always go home. When I was at boarding school, I, when I went home to my family, there were lots of lots of black people. My family at the time, we lived, moved back and forth from New York and North Carolina. But at the time we were living in North Carolina, where my parents were from, which is a small rural community that is predominantly black. Bertie County is 80 percent black. And uh, first of all, my parents didn't even know what the Ivy League was. They did not want me to go to Dartmouth. They wanted me to go to Rutgers. But Dartmouth gave me 
tons and tons of money. And my parents were like, well, if you're going to go, you need to go where they're giving you some money. And so I went to Dartmouth. We went and actually was one of the best decisions. uh, There is a couple of times in my life where I feel like I've made definitive decisions that define the course of my life. And one of those was choosing to go to Dartmouth. But when I got to Hanover, there were only really about 40 to 50 Black people in my class that I knew identified as being Black. So it was a stark contrast to my life previously. So that took a while for me to adjust. So I spent a small period of time during my time at Dartmouth depressed and angry. I got over that. The relationships that I built while I was there really helped impact me for everyday sense, really, for the rest of my life. So at Dartmouth, I could say I was I was just Nakaya. It was actually the first time I'd been using my given name because growing up, I was always known as Nikki. So there were all these people oh. calling me Nakaya. So it sort of gave me a chance to create this new identity, which it took me, I guess you'd say, the four years I was there to really develop. And uh, I was someone who was, I advocated for women's rights and women's liberty. The one time my parents saw me when I was at school on the news is when they were talking to the girls about Playboy coming to campus. Uh-huh. And I did an interview with the local news in <laughs> New Hampshire and West Lab. And then they could see it. My parents, my mother called me. She was like, what is going on? Why are you on the news talking about Playboy? Of course, I did not post Playboy in any way, shape, form, even though there's nothing wrong with that. But... Um, I was one of the people that went to interview because I felt that women should be allowed to have full autonomy over their bodies, which I still feel to this day. That has never changed. But that was so funny. My mother was like, what are you doing there? I was just somebody that (laughs) if, if there was something happening, I wanted to be in it. I wanted to stand up for things. I wanted to fight for things. I had always felt like I had been born in the wrong decade because of all the things that had happened before us, all the civil rights movements and things like that. And as I was coming up, I used to always fight my parents to say, we should be doing this. And they would be like, you, why? There's nothing really. My parents are sort of old school and their movement, they were involved in the civil rights movement. And for them, it was like, you don't have anything really to be worried about. You're good. You're going to college. You know, you're, you're doing these things. Mm -hmm. What are you tripping about? Because I was like, we said there's still so much more we could do. And they were like, you're, all, you're always just looking for a fight. And um, I was, uh, but on the other side, I was also a Dartmouth football cheerleader, something that I totally love. I was super excited about and that I still support, even though um, I was friends with a lot of hardcore lesbian feminists, I would say. And they would come to the football games after halftime when it was free and they would throw stuff at the cheerleaders while we were cheering because <laughs> they wanted me to quit so bad, which was, uh, which was, they were like, can you please have your friends stop doing stuff? I was like, they do not listen to me. They want me to quit. This is their idea of trying to harass me into quitting by harassing the whole cheerleading squad. So, of course, I didn't quit. It was a whole thing. And that was something I greatly enjoyed. That was my only athletic aspect of my whole four years of college other than um, when I worked at the I worked at the gym um, even though sometimes if I had been out late on Friday I would open the gym late on <laughs> <laughs> so it was your fault <laughs> yes and I, and I would come there and people would be already at the gym and I'd be like oh sorry my bad you know supposed to open at eight it's nine o'clock my bad I overslept you know stuff like that but you know those are the years where where you learn how to do it because that was the first real job I ever had that in the copy center and the bagel basement you learn how to show up for work 
Mm-hmm. And do work and stay at work even when you don't want to be there. When you have someplace else, you'd rather go. So that was my first real time learning that. So I guess my time at Dartmouth, I was just Nakaya. And when I left, I saw my life as being something much different than it is now and much different. I would have never, I feel like that girl and me are two totally different people at this point in my life. I wanted to just be out that explains why as soon as i left school i went to fashion because i just wanted to be out i wanted to just go to parties and be social and like dress well so my first job after school was at donna karen was at dkny in new york and i actually worked for the pr department and for um uh, donna karen herself which was great because as a new employee that was a big deal to do stuff and meet with and sit in on meetings with Donna. So that was a big deal. And I also had a clothing allowance. So, so imagine leaving school. I got my first apartment. Actually, I eventually got my apartment first. I lived in my parents' house. But living in my parents' house, looking for an apartment, I was getting paid, not very much money, but I was getting all these free clothes. And they were designer clothes because at the time, Donna Karen, DKNY, it was a big deal in like 96, 97, whatever. And I was so excited. I was like, we'd just be like at all the fashion shows. And this is when fashion and hip hop was first merging because I remember one of the first things I noticed in 96 was when Jay-Z and Diddy Mm. came and sat at one of Donna's shows. And it was like, oh, they're rappers at the show. This is a big deal. And this was like, really in the days where fashion and hip hop were really starting to become connected. And New York City at the time, this was pre 9-11, the late 90s. We had a budget surplus. The internet had started. It was mm-hmm. uh, it was a whole new world. And it was very, very, a very, very exciting time, especially if you were a fashion society sort of party girl, because that was the whole thing. You work at these fashion magazines. I didn't know at the time. I was just trying to work at fashion magazines because, you know, I love clothes and that's all I cared about was fashion. And so you mm-hmm. work at, it's sort of like um, a modern day version of a finishing school because it actually was because I learned a lot of things from Polly Mellon. I worked for her when I was at Allure and she was like one of the oldest living fashion editors. She taught me the importance of sending thank you cards. There was a whole thing about learning how to dress and learning how to talk. But you said it got super old. And it was yeah, just it the got, scene. And- oh my God, the scene got old. I remember it was in 2000. I was working at Elle magazine. One of the best things I will say about that time is that I took my mother to Paris for 10 days and she got to sit front row at fashion shows at the Louvre. And that was something my mother had always wanted to go to Paris. And I, one of the things I did at Elle magazine is that I managed the, um, the Pret-a-Porter and the couture shows. And I handled, cause I worked for Gilles Ben-Simon. First I was working for the booking department, but I was doing such a good job that Gilles Ben-Simon hired me over to work for him as his um, executive assistant. And at that time I was the only black person on the, editorial side of Elle magazine. There was one black girl in beauty and there was one black person that they hired after me in the advertising side. But in terms of the fashion department, there were no black people till I got there, which was interesting. But that was also the time where I was starting to get less enamored of fashion. But after a while, you know, you go to all the fashion shows, you go to all the fashion parties, you do all that. And I thought that that would be something that could sustain me for the rest of my life. But turns out, it was not. And I started to feel like I should be doing more of my life. Like I should be trying to help people or do something or something. 
And I remember telling one of my bosses that one time and one of my colleagues, they were like, what are you talking about? What are you going to do to help people? That's so naive to think that you can help people. And I was like, you can help people, you know, other than I was like, the most we're going to do is tell people what great clothes they're wearing. And, you know, fashion is art in that sense. But we're not we're not bettering anybody's life. We're just making them look better, which I thought would be enough for me, but it turned out it wasn't. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew that I wanted to try something different. I wanted to move to California. And so I quit my job. I moved to L.A., but I was only, this was like early 2000. I'd only been in L.A. like a couple of weeks. I was actually staying with a member of the class of 96, my best friend Wendell, Scott Reeder. And I realized that L.A. is not a place you need to be without a car. Because one of my other best friends lived there at the time, too. But I didn't have a car. And I was like, I can't really do anything here. I can't go anywhere. When does that work? How does that work? And I'm out here, like, trying to, what, I'm going to catch the bus? And so I was like, you know, and my my other best friend, who had been my uh, roommate at Dartmouth, her mom told me to come up to Berkeley and hang out with her there. So I went up to Berkeley. And I just hung out because I also have friends who, um, a bunch of guys I had been really close to um who were living in the bay area at the time and i was like oh i can hang out with them or something i figure out what i want to do it there was a point where i was like maybe i want to uh, my cousin had been living in israel at the time and i kept thinking oh well maybe i'll go there and become a, a photojournalist or something it was just i just really I, w- I had barely scratched the surface of 25 and i was really just trying to figure out where my place was in the world and so i was open to anything but i knew i wanted it to be of substance. I don't know why I thought I was going to be a great wartime photographer, even though, you know, I might've been, but yeah, that was, <laughs> that was not maybe the best idea of mine. And, but I always had these things that I was like, Oh, well, you know what? I want to try something that not many people are really trying. But while I was trying to figure that out, I was just sitting around bored during the day. Like I was thinking about grad school. I was thinking about maybe changing my mind and going to law school, but I was like, eh, I don't know if I want to do that. And then I remember Susan saying one day, why don't you come hang out at the preschool where I teach and hang out with the kids? And I was like, okay, whatever. I like kids. You know, who doesn't like kids? I come from a big family. I have nieces and nephews who I help raise. So I went to a new school, which is the oldest alternative school in Berkeley. No meat, no sugar, no violence is their motto. (laughs) (laughs) And I went to hang out and I hung out a couple of days and she was like, you know what? The kids like you. Why don't you take some classes while you're here and you can um, teach kids. So I ended up being a preschool teacher for two years. And it was while I was working there. And I actually, I loved it. I loved being around the kids. And I remember, this is something that's followed me later on in life. I remember Susan saying, you're so great at this. Why don't you do this? And I've had people tell me so that so many times in my life, like, you're so good at this. Why don't you just do this? But I did not feel it inside. It's like, yeah, I'm great at teaching, but I do not want to be a teacher. You know, it's fun. I love being around the kids. It was the bomb I need after working in fashion for so long. I didn't realize at the time, but it was just, it was just everything I needed to really bring me back to a place of that was closer to my real true self. Also, at this time, you were finding yourself in relation to someone else, right? So one of the moms took me out one night and we went out to this place called the Lucky Lounge. And there was this guy there and he was with these two other girls and he was drinking orange juice. And I was like, who comes to the bar and drinks orange juice? And then he came over and started talking to me and we were talking and we ended up talking all night and I let him give me a ride home. Even though when we got to my house, he was like, I was like, do you even remember my name? He was like, and he called me Nakia, which has been the bane of my existence because they called me Nakia at, my, at our graduation. Aww. And even after rehearsal, called me Nakia at my wedding. 
So <laughs> it, was like, it was like a whole thing. And still, even Alexa calls me to hear now. <laughs> but that is the night I met my husband. And a week later, we were engaged. Which <laughs> I know, sounds a little crazy. I know, at the time, I even thought it was a little crazy. I was like, these feelings I have, they must be crazy. Because I just met this dude, you know? I literally just met him. And prior to that, I hadn't really been dating. I had kind of, I had periods in my life where I go through long periods of celibacy. Because I'm just trying to focus my psychic energy is what I call it (laughs) where I'm just like, you know, I'm just going to just focus everything so that I can focus on these different things that these goals I want to accomplish and yada, yada, yada. And this is still at the time where I knew I didn't want to be a preschool teacher. And I was still trying to figure out what my next step would be. Cause I was like, I can't just do this forever. Cause I'm going to end up getting locked in. Cause I was already starting to feel a little locked in same way I had been in fashion. I remember talking to my mother about it and she was just like, are you ever going to be satisfied? And that also has been a, a sort of a trope that has followed me where when I decide to, I want to stop doing something and do something else and I explain the reasons why, the people around me are like, are you never going to be satisfied? Are you going to be perpetually unsatisfied? But it's, it's like a feeling you have inside of you when you know you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And so I I tend to follow that feeling. So I met my husband. We got engaged after a week. I did not marry him right away because I was like, just in case, this might be a bad idea. Let's give it a year. You know what I'm saying? Let's give it a year. Yeah. So we ended up living together um, and we were living together for three months when I was when I said we need to leave and go back to New York. My husband was from Costa Rica and uh, he had been living in Italy and he was uh, he's a great he was a great guy. And everything, but he did not have the prospects to make the kind of money that I could make to support our family. And I knew that when I fell in love with him and that we were going to get married, if we wanted the life we wanted, I we would not be able to have that on the salary I was making as a preschool teacher in Berkeley. Because I was making, this is like 2000 I was making like $10, $10 an hour um, as a preschool teacher because caregivers are underpaid still. Mm-hmm. There's still people that work at daycare centers and make less than $10 an hour in 2022. So that's something that definitely needs to be changed. So we moved back to New York and my dad, who was a truck driver at the time, he had a place in New Jersey with my uncle. And so we stayed there with them for about three months till I got a job. And then me and Mike got our own place in Brooklyn. But that's when I decided, okay, what I really want to do is what I wanted to do when I was little. Because when I was little, I used to collect TV guides. They still are in my parents' garage. I collected TV guides for like four or five years. I would just read them. I would read the listings and just... And this, I knew everything that was happening on television. I'd be like, you know what? They should change this to this, this and this. And that was something that I wanted to do as a kid. And so I decided I want to work in television because I always wanted to work in TV. You know, I wanted to run a network. That's something I wanted to do that I never even thought was possible. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to get a job in TV. So I applied to several different places and I ended up getting a job at Nickelodeon. I started all the way over. Even though I had all this experience previously, I had to start from scratch. So I got a job as an admin assistant for MTV Networks working at Nickelodeon and the communications and public relations department. And that's where I met um, a mentor who actually helped me navigate through that whole scene. His name was David Bittler, and he was great, super smart guy. And he really helped me really focus my energies on what I wanted at that time. So I ended up moving up very quickly at the network, super fast. Oh my God, super, super fast. And I got promoted a bunch of times and I actually won a Women in Cable and Television Award. I was one of the top 20, I guess, rising leaders in cable and TV. I forget what year that was, but I think maybe like 05. It was 07 because I was pregnant. And 
I was just doing a lot of things. I helped launch Logo, which is at the time was the only gay network. I was the only heterosexual <laughs> staff member for quite a while there. It actually turned me into a low-key LGBTQ advocate because at the time, 2005, I remember one time we got a bomb threat because we were launching a gay channel. Everybody had to leave the building. And I had to basically go on tour across America. I was traveling a lot at the time because, you know, Logo was very was a skeleton crew of a network at the time. So I was not just the PR person. I was also the photo person. I remember one time I had to write a legal writer for talent and I had to give it to the legal department. They were like, actually, this is really good. You did really well. <laughs> and I was like, well, I guess whatever. And then I was also the marketing person while they were looking for marketing people, just a bunch of different things. So I actually had to go on a tour of all the gay bars in America at the time. First, we have a panel talk about how it'd be great to have a gay channel and answer questions, a lot of ignorant questions as well about um, what a gay channel would do and things of that nature. And then I'd have to call all these papers and explain to them. And I remember I would call some of the gay publications and everybody thought I was a drag queen because my name was Nakaya Cherry Chichon, <laughs> right? So um, that was a little bit of a big deal. That was actually one of the things I was proudest about in my life um, that I helped get that together. But then I, after we launched and we started doing things, then I started wanting to do something different. So then I started working for MTV Networks Corporate, which was great. And started doing investigations, but then I wanted to do something different. And then, so they would, I kept wanting to do something different. And they were very open to me moving to it because, you know, MTV Networks at the time uh, was owned by Viacom, but also owned like 20 channels. So they were open to me moving around within the Viacom family. But eventually I knew that I wanted to do, they even paid for me to go back to school, to get a PR certificate, to go to NYU, to learn writing, because at the end of the day, I wanted to write. But all of this, Nakaya, when you had an infant. Oh, yeah. I had a baby. Oh, so that was the thing. So um, in 2007, I had Augie, August Giampiero, King Chinchilla. So, yeah. So when I traveled for work, I would take Augie with me. So I'd be in L.A. like two weeks out of the month and I would have Augie with me and I would have friends of mine that didn't have anything to do babysitting. Mike had been modeling for a while and he did this great ad, which I was totally unconnected to, for VH1, which actually now the ad is up in Augie's room. Hmm. And it was, I remember he was on taxi cabs all over the city and it was such a big deal for him. And it was just like so weird when you were like, oh, my husband's on this taxi. It was like a funny, funny time. But once I decided to have a baby, I was like, you know, I love that you're a model and actor. Not really, but because I had never signed up. I had always said I'd never want to date talent because actors and models, they need a certain amount of adoration. And also, <laughs> I've always felt that. And they also um, need to be able to do all these things that I kind of did not really want my husband to be doing. I needed somebody that was going to be helping me because I was doing all these things all the time. So if you're off traveling, yeah. who is going to be watching our baby? Even though I did have a nanny. It was like, but who? I need somebody to be the parent that's at home. And so Mike's got a job at Homeland Security, which was great. So anyway, so I was working at MTV and eventually that got old. Towards the end of the time I was at MTV Network. As much as I loved my job and my job was so much fun, everybody thought I had the best job. I'd be in my office with the door closed crying sometimes because that feeling inside of me that I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing was back. Even after even I thought at one time I'd want to run a network, but then it was just like, that's not really what I want to do. It's like, that would be great because I feel like I would be good at it. But just because I think I'd be good at something actually doesn't mean I will be. And also just because something seems fun and interesting doesn't mean that that's my life path. Mm -hmm. But I actually left MTV to work for this company called Oberon Media. 
which was crazy because this was right before the, this is in 2000, late 2008. And it was right before, right around the time of the crash. And the main funding of the company was Lehman Brothers. So I ended up resigning, but they had me sign a non-compete clause that I couldn't work for any other media company for 18 months. So, and then shortly after that, I went to take my son to spend some time with my parents. And then I started the process to move to LA. And we ended up moving to LA in November of that year. I came first and my husband came a month later. Nakaya, what was the pull? Why LA? Because I knew I wanted to do something more creative and I wanted to write. And so the best, even though you can write in New York, the best place to do that is really in LA. Okay. And I had been talking to one of my best friends and we were going to try to write together. During this time, so my husband was always such a pleasant, uh, mild-mannered guy. But then after like two or three years, he started, he started having problems running. Right. And he would try to run and it'd be like some stiff, jerky thing. And I was like, oh, that's weird. And then some every once in a while, he'd have these outbursts. And 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 then in like 2007, 2008, he was diagnosed with Tourette's. Um, He was having a lot of nervous tics. And I was like, something's going on with him. And the doctor was like, oh, he has Tourette's. And so I was like, "Okay, whatever. So sometimes he would have little little outbursts and say fucked up shit. And I'd be like, "Okay, that's his Tourette's. Okay." so by the time we got in. LA, I think actually the time I spent with my parents when he was in New York alone, because one thing I learned later on about Mike is that our relationship together had been very codependent. I didn't realize he was very dependent on me. I was basically not dependent on anybody. I managed everything, but he was very dependent on me on keeping on everything together. And when I went to live with my parents, I didn't went to go to live with my parents. I moved in with my parents because it was like I didn't have to work. I'd rather stay at my parents' house and have them spend time with Augie and, you know, hang out with my mom and my aunt, my great aunt who was living there. I think that that was stressful on him. And I think the stress exacerbated what we would come to find out later was his Huntington's disease. So we, when we got to LA, I was there first. Mike came after a month. And for the first year, it was okay, but difficult. Because it would go to the point where one day a week, Mike would just spaz out and flip out about things and just be screaming all day about things. And I'd just, I'll be at school. And I'd be like, peace, I'm out. I'll just leave. And uh, I thought, it, and I would try to talk to people about it. And people would tell me how, you know, sometimes husbands are assholes. I was like, really? Because I've been married to this dude for like seven years. And he is not, this is, this is some new assholery. And, um, and they were like, that's just, you know, that's sometimes how marriage is. And I was just like, I don't know, something's off. And I, something in me said that this was not just normal marriage stuff. Because it got to the point where one day a week he would be flipping the rest of the days. He'd be his regular happy he, he was a very pleasant. He was like anybody tell you about Mike. He was the most pleasant, happy-go-lucky, laughing, extroverted guy. Everybody loved Mike. But then one day a week, he would just be acting super crazy. I don't want to say crazy. I feel like that encompasses so much. But it was just the only thing I could say at the time that really explains how he was acting. And then it got to be where it was two days a week. And then it got to be where it was three days a week. And I was like, something's out with this dude. And then it got to be where four days a week, he would just be screaming. I, I would ask him to take out the trash and he would just scream about it for like 18 hours nonstop. And I was like, whoa, this is not okay. Like this, you are tripping. Like, and I'm at first, it was the kind of thing where I would scream back because it's like, you know, somebody yelled mm. at you, you yell back. But then I was like, wait, what did I even yell? This is nonsense. I was like, am I going to have to get a divorce? 
us? Because I remember the, the day before Augie was born, two days before Augie was born, Mike and I went to see Spider-Man. This is when I knew something was up for real, for real. Me and Mike went to see Spider-Man and he couldn't stop his foot from moving and he was tapping on the back of the seat in front of him. And the guy got mad and was like, stop tapping my foot. And he's like, I'm not tapping your foot. And I'm like, you're totally tapping your foot, dude. Like, stop. And I didn't realize at the time that he couldn't stop. But he kept, he, instead of saying he couldn't stop, he just denied that he was doing it. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out that him and the guy ended up yelling at each other in front of Spider-Man 3. I never even got to finish the movie. And I was nine months pregnant. I was like two weeks from my due date. And and we had to leave the theater because he was uh, wanting to fight with a guy for saying he was tapping the seat, which he was in fact doing. So when we get outside, I was like, why are you tripping? Like, what's going on with you? He was like, he said I was tapping. I was like, you were totally tapping his seat. I saw you. You were tapping his seat. And he got so mad at me that he ran away from me when I was nine months pregnant. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me right now? And I was like trying to talk to him, but he was so mad. He was like, you don't have my back. I was like, I'm just telling you the truth. You were tripping. And he was like, no, you're just taking his side. And he just like went off and then he just ran away from me. Literally started running so that I couldn't catch him because I was pregnant. And I was just like, I don't know if I'm gonna be married to this man for much longer. Like literally I had a thought in my head and I went to my girlfriend's house. I didn't even go home. And that's actually why I ended up having a C-section because I was so stressed out and I was having cramps. And so Sunday morning I called my doctor's office and my doctor, because I, I had a whole doula, I had a whole midwife thing I was gonna do. And my doctor was not in, it was her, three days she was off, right? And the other doctor there was like, I'm concerned that you might be having problems. I, let's, I wanna induce you tomorrow. And I was like, really? And she was like, yes. And I was like, okay. And my girlfriend was like, what? You about to have the baby? <laughs> and you did have Augie, but things still weren't making sense with Mike, right? I knew then and there that something was off. And that's something, that's something you know, you put in the back of your head. Like, that's fine. Right. You know, he was a great father. He was so loving. And he super apologized for running away that time. And I think a part of it is that, um, later on, I realized when I learned more about what was wrong with him was that a lot of the he didn't know what was going on himself. Right. So it was totally was, uh, beyond his control. So fast forward, we moved to California. And that first year, like 2010, it was crazy. But by Thanksgiving, it was getting really difficult. I didn't know what was wrong with him. And then he cut you off from being able to speak with his doctor or having the doctor tell you anything that was going on with his health, right? So I didn't even know what they were talking about at that point. And she couldn't tell me, but she did tell me she was concerned and uh, and that she wanted to make sure that me and Augie were safe because she was having concerns that she was worried about our safety. And I was just like, what the fuck does that mean? Can I get, get no details? But of course you can't. And it wasn't like he was being violent. It was more like he was just railing. And it was more like in a, sort of an emotional, abusive kind of situation. He would just be screaming at the top of his lungs and basically terrorizing my ears almost. And so I was just like, this is, uh-uh. I did not sign up for this shit, but I got to figure out a way to freaking um, get out of this situation. So finally, April 2011, I told him I was leaving. I got a job at the old preschool that I worked when I first met him. In the Bay and Area. I was going in the Bay Area. And then when school started in fall, Augie was enrolled in the school. So I was his preschool teacher. And I put him in therapy because I wanted to make sure I put him in therapy that I didn't realize at the time. But it was actually very good that I did that because um, it actually helped us later on. But I wanted to make sure that he had the tools to deal with whatever was going on with his dad. Because at that point, his doc, I would still call his doctor sometime. I'd be like, Mike's calling me, yelling at me, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. She's like, Nakai, I think Mike is psychotic. I was like, what do you mean you think he's psychotic? He was fine. How you just gonna go from fine to psychotic? She was like, I don't know, but 
clearly, I think that's why I was telling you to make sure you and you and Augie were safe, because I think he's exhibiting some psychotic elements and some schizophrenic elements. And I was like, what the fuck does this mean? And so so we were living in Berkeley and I had actually applied before we went to Berkeley for Augie to go to this charter school in L.A. called Ocean Charter School, the only Waldorf public charter school in Los Angeles. I had also got him into a really good school in Berkeley, but when I found out he got into the good school in LA, I decided to go back to LA and just start working and Augie'd be in school because then he could have a, a better relationship with his father. But the day I remember talking to Mike the day or two before we got to LA and it was really weird because he kept saying, oh, you're going to die by a heart attack. I was like, what the hell are you talking about? Because he kept saying, oh, you're going to die. You're going to die by a heart. It wasn't even like he was threatening to kill me. Even Mike and everything that was going on in his brain um, wanted me to die, just wanted me to die by natural me, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I can laugh about now because mm. that's Mike. Even all the things that were going on in his brain, you know, him not wanting me to live and be and be away from him with Augie, he just wanted me to die by a heart attack, which I was like, what does that mean? But the day Augie started kindergarten, Mike went missing. He wasn't at work. None of his coworkers knew where he knew where he was. He wasn't at his apartment. His two roommates didn't know where he was, and I couldn't get any information. And it was crazy. He was missing for like at that time. He had, he went missing for a week and a half before I knew what had happened. And I remember I called the cops. I called everybody, and I actually contacted his job and said that he was out sick. Um, he was um, he was out sick, and he'd just be using sick days because I didn't want him to lose his job. And um, because that was the sole court. Um, that was the sole income for both of us. And I remember calling the cops because I am his wife, because we were still married because I hadn't filed for divorce yet. And the cops were like, well, he's not in a morgue and he's not in jail. And that's all we could tell you. And I was like, well, what is that? My husband is missing. Like, do something. And and then about a week and a half, maybe like nine, ten days later, I got a call from a doctor at a mental hospital in Penmar. And they said, your husband gave us your phone number and told us to call you. We think he has had a psychotic break. And I was like, what? And I was like, so what do you guys want to do? They were like, well, he was on a 48-hour hole. And now he was on a 5150. That's when I learned what a 5150 is. I don't know what a 5150 is. What is it? A 5150 is a mandatory psych hold. If you're acting in such a way where you might be a danger to yourself or others, the police put you in, um, you have to put on a 48-hour review. And if you don't pass that review after 48 hours, it gets extended to 14 days. And after 14 days, it gets extended to a month. And that, and after that, something else has to occur. You have to be really, really like violent or something like that for them to do anything past that point. So Mike was on a 5150 because why? Because he was in the street claiming he was Jesus. Huh. And he got put on a 5150 and then he got put on a two week hold. And they were telling me that they were going to probably extend that for another 30 days. And so they released Mike after 30 days and he got picked up three hours later and he, they started the process again. He got put on a 48 hours, uh, 14 days and then month. And then that was around the time when his month would be up would be Thanksgiving. And I remember the doctor calling me and saying, listen, you should come get him and you should take him. I was like, and I had my own apartment by then. It was just me and Augie. And I was trying to make everything work, work where I started doing freelance fashion stuff. I got back into fashion because that was easy. And I was like, I can't come live with me. I can't manage him. I, I, I can't do it. And also, I'm trying to divorce this man. 
I can't, I can't do this. And I remember I had a conversation with my parents about it. And it was a conversation that I will never forget because my father was like, we do not throw people away in this family. Mm-hmm. And I was like, y'all are fucking killing me, daddy. You're killing me. <laughs> because I was like, this, you, that's an in-law. That's, you know what I'm saying? That's even though my parents had really loved him and taken him in. And they were like, that, they were like, that's your son's father. He is sick. Something is wrong with him. Like, you you can't just throw him away because it's com- convenient. Even though everybody else I knew was just like, you better not bring him home. Like, cause he is acting crazy. He said, you're going to die by heart attack. Who knows? But he's psychotic or schizophrenic. They didn't even know. They were like, sometimes he was, some days he was schizophrenic. Some days he was psychotic. They didn't know. And I was just like, uh-uh. I was like, yo, I, they were like, you better not bring him home. He could be angry. You do not do it. Do not feel guilty into it. But of course, I'm someone that is very ruled by guilt, especially when it comes to my parents. But um, part of me felt like, you know, I did say, I did pledge to love this person through sickness and health. And clearly something was going on with him health-wise. And, and he was refusing to take meds. And I just, I felt like maybe I, if I brought him home, he could spend some time. And that was also because Augie wanted to spend some time with his dad. Augie missed his father because they had had a very loving relationship. Even when Mike had been yelling at me, he never yelled at Augie. Never. He never He never wanted to discipline Augie. Augie basically was a wild baby running around the house doing whatever. Mike never wanted to say no to him. Never wanted him to feel like he was not loved at any point because Mike's mother had abandoned him. So I brought Mike home right before Thanksgiving and he was and he was really mellow. They had him on some meds that made him really mellow. And I got him to take the meds, even though sometimes he would spit out when I wasn't looking. So I had to make sure he was swallowing them. But I said that he could come home with me, but only he could stay with me, only if he took his medication. And that's when it really became our relationship changed. And I became sort of his ward. And it became the kind of thing where it was so funny because we went from being boyfriend, girlfriend, went from being my boyfriend to my lover, to my fiance, to my husband, to uh, my co-parent, to my fucking nemesis who was harassing me for like a year and a half Mm. to my ward and then eventually to like my best friend. And so ends part one of The Roads Taken by Nakaya Cherry Chinchilla thus far. Come back next week for part two as she unravels her husband's medical mysteries, creates the world her son needs, and stretches her own skills and abilities on that ever-presented quest to quench the feeling inside, prompting her to do what she's meant to do. While waiting for the continuation of this story, I urge all members of our Dartmouth class of 1996 to check your email or go to dartmouth1996.org to find out more about all the hard work Nakaya has been putting into our 25th reunion. Registration is now open for the in-person event July 22nd through 24th. For all listeners, we urge you to subscribe, follow, and review our show wherever you get your podcasts. Apparently, that improves the algorithm to let more people find our stories and makes it so that you don't miss a single episode with my guests and me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, on Roads Taken. <laughs>